Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen, and we're coming to you guys live from the CAFO Summit here in Nashville, Tennessee. And we already had a really great day yesterday at the research symposium. Phil, tell us what was your favorite part about yesterday? Yeah, my, my favorite part about the symposium every year, it's it's the day before um, CAFO, the, the full summit gets kicked off. And I just love having researchers, you know, who are really often not in the field every day, but they're researching these things at really high levels and coming up with just amazing conclusions to the to their studies and, and just really realizing, I mean, you were one of the researchers, you're also been in the field, you're kind of the rarity there as far as being able to be both theory and practice. Most of the time, the theory kind of sits in theory land and the practice is out there doing it every day and, and really neither the twain shall meet. But yesterday and every year with this research symposium, Nicole Wilkie with CAFO has put this together the last few years. And you know what? It, it's a time where we can really have application and you know research meet. And it's not perfect, but it comes together in a way that, that I think that, I mean, we'd call it the applied research, right? So we're saying, how can we take this research and really put it into action? How can we also bring the action to the researchers to let them know where that theory practice gap is a lot of the time? And I live in both as well because we have La Providencia in Honduras and I'm able to really be researching all kinds of other amazing work around the world. Um, and I'm again, a guy who's, who's not the norm and I see that theory practice gap all the time. So to have a bunch of people in the room yesterday wrestling with these really hard issues, that's what really sticks out to me every year. Now, every year the researchers are phenomenal. Um, so that's a constant. Um, and I, but I think every year I've seen more and more just the questions being asked. They're a lot more sophisticated. The people are really wrestling with these things. And I think we're also realizing that, you know, there is no one right answer more and more as I think the, the longer you people, I was talking to Mike Doris yesterday, who we're going to have on the show in a couple of weeks. And, and Mike was saying to me, he's been doing this for 44 years and it was crazy. That's like, I'm 42. So I, I, I said, you've been doing this longer than I've been alive. That's just insane. But talking to him, he'll, he'll, he'll tell you as much as anyone I'm still learning. And I, I don't know that much. I learn all I know every day is I have all kinds of questions. So that's really what I love about the research symposium. what what do you think about it? I'm tracking with you, Phil. It was a, a great afternoon and, and morning as well. I get really, really excited and encouraged when I see and hear science combined with church and when I see brothers and sisters in Christ being willing to listen to the common grace that we receive through medicine and research and science. and. I just, I love being a part of that. I love seeing um, pastors and ministry, people who are working in ministry, being willing to hear about effective and empirically supported treatments and um, best practices. It really warms my heart and encourages me for the faith and clinical collaboration that, that I do every day, uh, day in and day out with my patients, as well as the consultation that I do with churches and ministries. For me, my take home, one of my, my favorite takes ho- take homes was from um, Dr. Mandy Howard, and she was on the show, I think a couple of weeks ago, but She's a professor at Stanford University and one of Dr. Karen Purvis's protégés at uh, TCU Institute for Child Development. 
And one of the things that she was talking through, we both presented on caring for caregivers track, and that is near and dear to my heart as well. And, and just emphasizing the fact that we are not only caring for children who've had histories of harm and who've experienced trauma, abuse, and neglect, but when kids come into our home or when we're providing care in ministry settings, our residential treatment facilities here in the states that we also have to intentionally care for caregivers. I, I loved what she talked about in her research and just saying that really that that importance of having that one person in your story that you can be real with, that you can be emotionally and psychologically present with. And when we're caring for caregivers, she provided some research and some statistics and basically she's saying that in that one relationship that that person essentially just needs to be present with you 30% of the time. And that was just a big take home for me, a reminder of as I'm pouring into parents and the work that I do and pouring into staff and, and church leadership of just being able to bring that small point to them of saying, hey guys, you know, we're not telling you, you have to be totally 100% present with your mentor or your professional coach or the person that's discipling you. I'm just saying like, hey, literally just like three times out of 10, you need to go deep with that person and you need to be real with them and you need to essentially let someone care for you. Those are some big take homes for me and just reminders that healthy, intentional, authentic, real relationships is is what makes um, our life filled with joy and what makes us able to have true connections and makes us be able to, I think, be more effective in the work that we're doing in whatever sector that might be in. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was it was a day. I mean, and that was just such a, such a snippet of so much good stuff. And, and the good news for you out there, if you missed it, um, you get to hear part two of an interview from one of the rock stars from yesterday. Um, Delia Pop, uh, the more I get to know this woman, the more I'm impressed. Uh, just as a human being, as a researcher, as a, as an advocate for children around the world. Um, and I just found out uh, yesterday, she's also a fellow Manchester United supporter. So I, you know, she's going up and up. She told me some great stories about that too, but I won't, I will not get into that on this show because this is not a Manchester United podcast. Um, if anyone wants to start one of those, give me a call and we'll see what we can do. But Today, we get to hear from Delia again, and I got to tell you, again, like I said, yesterday, she hit it out of the park as well. Not surprising. And um, you get to hear the rest of the interview from last week. If you didn't hear uh, last week's interview with Delia, I strongly encourage you to go back, listen to it before you listen to this part two, because this really is a continuation of my conversation with her that started last week, and there's a ton of good stuff in that one too. So uh, go ahead and, and listen to that last one if you haven't. If you have, you'll, you'll, you're going to be in for a treat for this part two. And we'd love, as always, love to hear your comments, love to hear any questions you have, any feedback. Um, give it to us on uh, the Think Orphan website. Uh, you can also do it on Facebook. Um, give us an email at info at Think Orphan as well. So thanks again, and, and we'll, uh, we'll hear you on the other side. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit now and, and really go into um, talking about the kids who are currently in families but are at risk of separation and, and desperately need family strengthening. Um, we hear a lot about vulnerable at-risk children. I think that that's, that's really this, this group of kids. Obviously there's more, but this is, these are definitely in that, in that group. Um, mm -hmm. what interventions often work, uh, to strengthen their families, really help their parents or extended family caregivers alleviate the poverty that, that make it more likely 
that these kids won't end up in an institution. Mm -hmm. And I I really want you to speak, you know, in the answer to talk to your or speak to your active family support that you have with with Hope uh, and Homes uh, for Children. Um, Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. well, I I think it's absolutely right. Uh, One is I would just say that learning and understanding why children are placed in orphanages and what are the 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 kind of the ways in, um, it is a really important step in identifying those communities that might be more vulnerable and enabling us to use our limited resources into supporting those families who are most likely to to be uh, on the brink of separation or at risk. Um, As I said before, families at risk Uh, experience a similar set of circumstances, but in different combination of of factors and risks. They are more likely to be large families, single parent families. They are more likely to be isolated and not to have access to a network of support, you know, might not have relatives close by, might not have friends close by. Um, These families are more likely to have... um, to experience conflict, maybe intrafamilial violence or, or, or unrest. They are uh, sometimes parents are ex- and children and all children are experiencing ill health issues that lead from a chronic problem to, to uh, a disability or, or something more, more severe. Um, a lot of the families experience poverty and sometimes extreme poverty. So these are the underlying circumstances uh, in which we operate and in which we need to identify which families would receive support and, and how. Now, with Hope and Homes for Children, we developed an approach that you mentioned. It's called active family support. Um, and it helps us. It guides our methodology to working with families. The the principles behind active family support are, are quite quite few and, and they are quite simple. Active means the active participation of the families in the development of a of a plan, of a support plan, and helping families to understand and, and formulate their their vision and their aspirations for for the future. Um, this is not just supporting one child in a family. It's really supporting the child within the family, w- within a community. Um, the other principle behind the approach is that we want from the inception, from from moment zero, to ensure that families are committed to to working with us and to changing their circumstances. And we work to sustainability. The quicker the family is able to to transition from being at risk to to being sustainable, the bigger is our success, if if you want. And last but not least, um, some of the family, especially those who are experiencing very significant risk factors and they are in a very, very challenging situation, they would um, require a longer time of support. Uh, so we are not uh, implementing this approach by saying this is a six-month intervention. What we are saying is each family will receive bespoke support for a period of time that will enable them to move from A to B, from being at risk to, to being sustainable, and they are confident when they are reaching that point. 
um, even with this estimation, we have an average of, of three months in, in the program uh, with most of the families, though we have child-headed households or other families that stay in for longer. What the evidence tells us and what external evidence is also telling us is the fact that interventions are not kind of, um, they are comprehensive. They look at children at the center of the intervention with families, immediate family around them, and then with the extended family and the community surrounding that unit. Um, the interventions, the minimum interventions are always uh, assessed across a number of five or six areas of intervention. We are looking at living conditions um, and, and safety is quite an important element of it. We are looking at family and social relationships. And that is an area I cannot stress how important it is and how much it helps families to moving from an a status of isolation and marginalization to being, again, part of the community. Uh, we are supporting education, health, and, of course, interventions to empower families to move on uh, and improve their um, household economy. So uh, in, some, in some environments where there are certain behaviors uh, like, you know, alcohol, consumption or, or other issues, we are looking at social and anti or violence is prevalent in a community. There is another area added to the assessment and it's around social and antisocial behavior. So basically we are assessing which behaviors in the family might lead to uh, risks to children, uh, to separating the family and work with the family to, to address those. Now, as you can imagine, these interventions are, are quite bespoke. We use this framework, we assess, we plan with families the plan, the, the, the interventions, and then we see the families actually graduating from the, pro, from the program. Mm. What we've learned also is that if we wanted to, to highlight and to kind of take this bespoke support from supporting 800 families in a country to supporting thousands of families, we could do it by using something that we call community hubs. So community hubs are places in which we train volunteers to be able to work with families across all these areas I mentioned and where children are receiving services, young people are receiving services and the community hubs kind of reach out to the communities around them. It's a great concept that one can use to scale up interventions. Once you pilot this bespoke one-to-one, -one, then you can, you can transform it into, into something that delivers to many more families across larger communities in a way that is extremely cost-effective. Yeah, you know, I, I think w there's so much there that we could unpack, but for the sake of time, I want to focus on one area that you Please. you touched on briefly, um, and it's child-headed households. Yes. Um, you know, they're, they're far too common in the countries you're working in, and I'm sure in the countries that yeah. uh, a lot of our listeners are, are, are in. Um, can you just speak uh, to the specific different issues that arise in those situations? You alluded to the fact that you take longer with those situations as far as they stay yeah. in the program longer. Um, yeah. How do you address those issues with special support? Um, it, it, 
Thank you so much. I think it's such an important an important group, and as you highlighted, it it is quite prevalent across a, a number of countries in the world. Um, we do work with child-headed households using exactly the same approach as I highlighted in active family support, but we put in place additional supports. And I want to tell you a story. Um, Ten years ago, when I first, or, or a bit longer, a bit long ago, um, I visited Rwanda for the first time. And I remember having a conversation with, with the country director at that time. And he was telling me how concerned he was about child-headed households. And he was concerned because he felt that those children living with their siblings in the parents' uh, houses were more at risk they were targeted by their communities. They were more likely to experience abuse. They were more likely to be at risk of, of sexual abuse. There were a number of teenage pregnancy situations. And he was brainstorming with me and he was telling me, how about we bring all these child-headed households and we build a village for them? And in this way, we are going to have all the vulnerable children in one place. And we're going to help them in, in that way. Um, and, of course, I said, no. Mm -hmm. Why would we do that? Um, but I completely understood where he was coming from. Um, he realized that our child-headed households were not performing as we would expect and, and children had huge, huge problems. So we said rather than creating a village where all the children will be the same and they will only be known as the children from the village, uh, why don't we see how the communities that are already around them um, can support those children? And we uh, spent probably over a day, probably two days in a really, really hot uh, and unpleasant office with the entire team, building up the image of a superhero. What would be the volunteer, the best volunteer? And I, I, we were, you know, I think we just came up with the Superman and Superwoman profile, really and truly, mm -hmm. um, only to, to reach the point at the end of those sessions that, look, we will never be able to find these people. They are perfect and you can't find them in all communities. Is there any other way? And you know that the penny dropped. Um, and what we came up with was, why don't we go back to the children and ask them, who do they trust in communities where they live and why, and who they don't trust and why? So that the story begins, we went, the children were very competent in telling us and giving us names and people who they trusted and explained why, and people they didn't, and explained why. So we became very aware of, of those dynamics in communities. And what we did, we went back to those people that children identified as, as they were trusting, and they were grateful for their support. And Phil, it was, they gave us a meal once. They helped us during a storm. Um, they helped us on the way to school. Uh, they gave us some food when we were hungry. That was the kind of support. We went back to those individuals in the communities, and they were from every single social strata, from 
the next door neighbor who was experiencing the same level of poverty to the the headmaster of of the local school. Um, And we told those guys, thank you. We are here to represent these children. Um, We are very grateful for your support. Um, and, And again, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. This is the message from the kids. I've never seen adults so humbled and so grateful. They were humbled by the fact that the children recognized their support. And they said, oh, my God, it wasn't even helping them. It was something little that we had around. We didn't even think about that. And they were humbled by the fact that children remembered those instances and remembered them and and mentioned them to us. Um, In a swift move, we waited a couple of weeks after thanking them. And then we asked them if they would like to become volunteers. And most of them wanted to become volunteers and mentors for those child-headed households. The impact of that, with a little bit of training, a little bit of support to creating that kind of knowledge base that they needed, their understanding of where the children are coming from, what are their vulnerabilities, how they can support them, how they can manage challenging behaviors, the transformation that those volunteers working with children and children working with them brought to the child-headed households, I've never seen it in any other program. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it was absolutely tremendous. In one year, Phil, we actually reduced the number of teenage pregnancies in our groups to zero. Mm-hmm. In one year time, we actually had to say goodbye to our legal advisor. <laughs> we did not need a legal advisor anymore because we had no more conflicts that we had to deal with at uh, higher courts. All the all the negotiation now took place at the community level. Mm-hmm. So what this experience taught me, and I would like to share this with, with our listeners, is one, we need to understand the special circumstances of children living in child-headed households. One, it is their decision They want to live there with their siblings and they have a protective role. But we need to be very mindful of what are the fact that they don't have an adult in the household prevents them from learning certain behaviors that makes them safe at the community level. So helping them to identify a person they already trust, to become a mentor for them, to help them learn how to engage with the elderly, how to negotiate for certain things, how to introduce and present themselves is absolutely critical. Um, The biggest impact of the program had on on unwanted uh, pregnancies, on conflict, but also it saw a a huge kind of development in the positive relationships between siblings. Um, And we had then the ability to actually work with those who were heading the uh, child-headed households, you know, the older children, and really look at what they wanted, because we should not forget that they are children as well as kids. So they needed extra support. um, And we were able to look at them, you know, going back to school, uh, what kind of school, what kind of training they they wanted to to receive and support them in their caring and kind of role that they they assume with their younger siblings. Right. Wow, that is that is very powerful. Um, And it really leads into the next thing that I want to talk about, um, really the mentoring side of things. 
And that's uh, another, unfortunately, oft-neglected issue that we have in, in orphan, uh, care of orphan and vulnerable children is helping the children who are in institutions yeah. when they age out and, and helping them to flourish upon leaving care. Um, I know that mentoring is a big part of it, but, you know, mentoring is a word that I think is often used without explanation and, define, yeah. and definition. But what are some ways that we can really feed into the lives of these kids and, and, and pour into them and accomplish the task of helping them to flourish when they age out. Absolutely. Um, it, it is such an important question, Phil. And again, uh, we know that there is a significant proportion of young people who have spent their entire lives in an orphanage. Now, the next step probably is to uh, become independent in the communities. Those young people have lived in an environment that is very different from the typical community. And, and they do require a significant amount of support, mentoring, coaching, you know, just day-to-day -day, uh, um, uh, one-to-one support to be able to first and foremost become a positive part of the transition. Um, in, in, in many institutions in which we, uh, we work with children and young people to, to leave uh, institutions and, and lead independent lives or, or transition into family life in communities, young people were the most challenging group to work with. And I think one needs to be prepared to enjoy that work in a way that will enable young people to resist the change to ask all the questions, to test our love and, and, and support to them, and then to engage with us in a journey where trust, uh, communication that is accurate and timely, and constant guidance will enable them to make this step into the world that is very scary outside the orphanage uh, in a way that is successful. I've learned to ensure that young people actually are the first ones in line in this uh, preparation work. They need a lot of time. I've learned never to assume that young people who have experienced institutional care, um, they have the very, very basic skills for survival. It's very possible that they have never experienced, you know, buying a bus ticket or, you know, kind of learning how people make money and understanding parents going to work and, and so on and so forth. So there are there are certain certain things that one does not need to assume. And it's important for us to ensure that young people have access to such information. I think one um, critical aspect that we need to ensure is the we need to make sure that young people and the positive relationships that they developed with their peers and adults in institutions are going to be transferred into the outside world. Um, someone who uh, only experienced life in an institution, I'm sure, has friends uh, across the, the group of, of young people. There must be one or two carers who have a special relationship with them. All the positive relationships are almost foundation blocks for us helping young people to, to transition. Um, I've also learned from, from young people that um, understanding how community operates, understanding positive relationships, understanding risks, being able to make good decisions for themselves is actually quite very important. So social stories and, and kind of group discussions are quite important. 
to ensure that they learn the skills and they hone their skills to be able to to protect themselves. We know that some young people coming out of institutional care are extremely vulnerable and they are most likely, more likely to be exploited, to be abused, to become single parents, etc. So keeping positive relationships with peers, helping young people to to move and make decisions for themselves is absolutely, absolutely critical, um, enabling them to have a voice and and working with those who are, let's say, uh, better prepared to to become uh, the, the leaders of their group and then helping those young people to share their experience with the others is, is quite important. Mm. You know, young people are very a very special group. And, and no matter how hard we try as adults to connect with them, um, there is only a certain amount of trust that we can develop. Uh, but peer-to-peer support is something that, that works really, really well. And, and we need to ensure that we allow... Uh, and 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 catalyze those those circumstances where peer to peer support can 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 take place in a in a meaningful meaningful way. Um, once young people start living independently or semi independently in communities, it's also very important to ensure that they continue support. This is when life kind of kicks in. This is where. There will be experiences, bad experiences that could, you know, have a significant negative impact on them. So the ongoing support, you know, simple uh, SIM cards, telephones, making sure that young people can connect to each other, uh, making sure that those who live close by can visit each other, can meet on a regular basis. Being connected with the church, with the with the community group is also really, truly important. So I would say the work starts, the, the hard part of the work starts when, when young people are integrated in communities uh, and where they continue to, to need this support. And helping young people to manage failure, you know, uh, failure is part of our lives. Um, but helping young people to understand how to process that and how to learn and how to become stronger out of out of that experience is really important. Absolutely. One key concern that I've learned from working with young people is around their education. A lot of young people who uh, spoke to us about the institutionalization, their fears, and, and so on and so forth, highlighted the fact that they felt really... Um, really far away from their families. They they still had a lot of feelings about the separation, the trauma of that, the fact that they've been alone for so many years. And they really needed their own time to be able to transition, uh, to reach a point when they wanted to connect with their families. Mm. For the young people I met, for most of them, the most critical element was education and their ability to continue education, to complete whatever education they were in, or to follow up a vocational career was absolutely a, a key piece for for reassurance and, and, and of importance in their transition from uh, from an institution into into communities. Mm. Wow, yeah. Um, I want to Again, I, I'm just there's so much I want to dive into, but we are already um, past the, the, the point of uh, time that I know that we were going to be going to. But I want one more question before we go into our last couple uh, questions uh, here. 
today, which is the, the last one I want to talk about is a little bit about collaboration. You know, it's very important yes. to this show that we talk, you know, it's so much of what we talk about is collaborating. And it's why we were really doing this podcast is to help people to collaborate. It's to help people understand all the things you're talking about today to understand that they can, you know, go to you and have you, you know, work with you, hopefully in the countries that, yep. that you're working in. And if maybe some new countries that you go to in the future. But when we talk about that uh, collaboration with other organizations, with government, government, how important it is, particularly when you were advocating to change systems, policies, mindsets, and entire cultures and societies, um, why, you know, basically, how does that effective collaboration uh, work in practice? And, and if you have an example of that, that would be, I'd love for you to be able to share it with our audience. Perfect. Um, certainly. Well, collaboration, I don't think we could do anything without collaboration, especially in this field. I think we are sometimes plagued by uh, very narrow agendas or, or maybe lack of trust between partners. But um, as an organization, we, we, we strongly encourage and, and support collaboration across the board with a number of key players. Um, I would like to highlight a couple of amazing examples of collaboration that we have in countries where we operate. Um, we are, for example, working in, in, in many countries in which we have mature programs to support small organization, small, medium-sized organizations, local organizations, first and foremost, to meet each other, to understand and learn from, from their own programs if there are areas where they can operate together, if they can learn from each other, almost like creating, uh, you know, incubators for innovation, for, for scaling up interventions, for bringing resources all together. And we are trying by, uh, we, we are commencing this, this work always by putting out, you know, invitations for people to share their values, their mission, those who work in, in the child protection and, and serving children kind of arena. And slowly and gradually, over a period that usually is between one and two years, we work to support these organizations to build their skills, their capacity, including to building their trust. Um, so that despite the fact that we have different agendas and we all bring something to, to, the, to the table that might be different, we can all advocate in one voice. We can all be much more powerful in our collaboration and engagement with governments because governments are a critical element of collaboration here if if our work is to be sustainable if we want to be able to support the building or rebuilding of a foundation for children to live and grow in safe and happy families what we need is not only our ability to deliver that on the ground, but we need governments who will become accountable to ensuring that whatever we build is going to be sustainable. It's going to be funded. It's going to, to be embedded in policy and legislation in the countries in, in which we, we work. Um, I think it's one, there are so many advantages around collaboration. One is the fact that you can, you have a safe space where you can share your work and you can learn from others. Second is you are enriching yourself by getting acquainted with other approaches and, and you know, different kind of groups uh, that, that come into place supporting communities. Third, you find synergies. We, for example, 
collaborated with the faith-based community to recruit foster carers for children with special needs. Mm -hmm. That was the most amazing collaboration, which led to us demonstrating that children with special needs can be cared for in families, in communities, in countries like Rwanda and Sudan. Uh, we collaborated with the faith-based community in Sudan, where we managed to support children uh, to move from an institution, you know, children born out of wedlock, into emergency foster families. And that was encouraged by the religious leaders in the community. And the adoption or reintegration of children was, again, supported by the same stakeholders. We collaborated with, with NGOs in countries like Moldova, Romania, um, simply by creating a platform where we were able to exchange our our views. But ultimately, we ended up with informal or formal coalitions whereby our voice is very strong when we have to constructively criticize governments that uh, might forget what are their key uh, obligations or, or mandates or they, they struggle to put uh, funding where their political commitment is. Um, it's, it's collaboration is, is absolutely critical. And I think there are, there are um, of course, there are concerns. And, and usually there are concerns around protecting your intellectual property, protecting your approach, not being judged. Uh, um, I would advise people to ensure that, first and foremost, there is an openness to listen, mm -hmm. to listening to what other people do and say. Second, that there is a shared uh, set of values um, that organizations share. I suggest and always advise uh, for, especially for collaborations that lead to joint implementation and joint fundraising for a good due diligence process to be put in place to ensure that, you know, your investment in the partner organization is, is going to be reflected by the same kind of standards in terms of governance, transparency, accountability, etc. Um, and I would say, uh, last but not least, allow the diversity of the points of view to strengthen your collaboration and, and bring different, different points to a discussion that ultimately needs to support what we were discussing before, the best interest of the child. Right. Well, fantastic. Well, that's a great way to lead into our uh, last couple questions that we ask all of our guests. And um, uh, just go right into it. What have you read, okay. watched, or listened to recently that uh, has most impacted your thinking on how we can best care for orphaned and vulnerable children around the world? Oh, um, well, I, I read quite a, an interesting an interesting draft study that I can't quote because it's not yet made available a, around funding of, of institutional care. Um, and it's something that really it's interesting for, I guess, for all of us to understand where, where the funding streams are coming from and how we can ensure that the funding actually serves the best interest of the, ch of the children uh, and, and is capacitated to delivering the best outcomes. Um, I watched a, a short video that was um, uh, put together by one of our partner organizations called Child's Eye Foundation in Uganda. Um, they are. They have some superpowers with regards to to documenting work. They're very good at doing that. And I asked them to to document our work with children and young people with special needs. And I, I watched the video they put together, and and 
I cried and I was happy and I was delighted because I saw the power of supporting children who and and people who everyone believed that they would never be able to live independently or semi-independently in the community, thriving in a community they changed with their own with their own hands. Mm. Um, yeah, so these are these are my two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, we'll definitely have those on the. Well, we'll have the one because if 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 the draft is done by the time we uh, we release this episode, we'll have the the study. As I will well, share I with you. That, I know that a lot of people will be interested in seeing that. Um, the last question: What one person has most impacted your thinking about how we can love and care for orphaned and vulnerable children with excellence? Hmm. Um, it's one little girl. I I was I was thinking about her and I was talking about her the other day because she taught me how the importance of love uh, and how it is impossible to measure that. Um, she let's call her Mihaela. Uh, she was one of the first children I I cared for in in the small group home. Um, most beautiful girl, uh, four and a half. Her entire life uh, in in an orphanage, and and then she was transferred in 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 the small group home. Um, she was she was smart and she was laughing and and she really she really had a huge impact on on my life. And I I was I felt like a parent to her. I I, I took a lot of responsibility and I spent a lot of time with her. I obviously I was developing quite a strong bond with with her. And one day her mother came into picture and it was a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, and she asked if she could, she could have her daughter visiting her. And my first reaction, um, and it was very selfish, was, oh, my God, do, do, I leave, do I leave this beautiful girl that I'm now shaping and educating and teaching and transforming into this even more beautiful and, and, and potentially successful child? Um, to go outside and to be in, you know, to, to stay with her mom for a day um, in her mother came from a really, really poor Roma community from um, just outside the outskirts of, of a city. Um, and after being judgmental, I decided, well, it's, it's really <laughs> her mother wants a visit. And, and when she came back, this girl, she, I've never seen a child so happy. Um, she was hungry. <laughs> she was dirty. She had a brilliant day and she fell asleep telling me about her experience with her mom and how much she loved her mom and those, you know, how many hours she spent with her. It, that moment to me was sad because I realized that I can't be a parent. I'm only a facilitator in that relationship. But it taught me how important was my decision and how important we are all in facilitating this reconnection, in, in helping children and parents to express their love and, and, and be together um, despite the most challenging circumstances. Yeah, wow. Well, thank you so much for, the, for that and thank you so much for everything that you've uh, shared with us in this, in this conversation um, and thank you for all the great work that you and Hope for Homes for Children are doing around the world. 
Thank you so much, Phil. It's it's been a pleasure, and um, I'm I'm so delighted uh, to to be invited and humbled to be part of this dialogue. Um, I'm really looking forward to to your listeners to to connect with us and and uh, to collaborate. Well, once again, I am I just absolutely loved what Delia had to say. The only regret I had is that we couldn't just keep going on and on and learning more from her because I know there's so much more she can teach us. And the good news is, though, she does do work all around the world. So connect with her if you wherever you are doing this work. She would love to be able to help you where you are. I mean, that's the thing about Delia. She is she is here as part of our team and we're on this team together and she truly sees it that way. So so reach out to her. We'll have you know the, the ability to get to, to her website and to connect with her on the show notes. But Karen, what do you what do you take away from that second part of the interview? Yeah, Phil, there were so many things that were just fumbling around in my brain and so many things that I want to go back and listen to again. This is definitely not only because it's our podcast, but because it's such good material that's going to be earmarked for me to keep for a really long time. A couple of things that stood out to me is how clearly she articulated the need for alternative care principles. In my brief time living overseas in East Africa, I was privileged enough to work with with the alternative care movement in Uganda and worked with some really great people that are doing um, very intentional family-centered interventions and, and really trying to care best for families and children and looking at the longer-term impact um, with society and with culture there and, and particularly in Uganda. And I loved that she talked about the necessity and, and looking into the culture that we're in and what is what is necessary here, what, um, what alternatives already exist and what's appropriate, what's suitable. And those are good things to remember. What I've seen, again, in my experience and and being able to provide consultation in international settings, I really, truly believe that most people come up with really great ideas and and they come from a place with such great intentions. But all too often what happens is when we get overseas and when we get into that community, we understand that um, maybe what I had in mind here in America in my Western trained, educated brain isn't going to fit nicely in whatever country and whatever developing Uh, world is happening. And I love that she's saying, hey, put the brakes on. Guess what? You white American, she didn't say that I did. (laughs) You don't you don't have all the answers. You need to figure out what do they need and, and what, what data can you gather? What already exists? Um, how can we support families and kids in this transition? But most importantly, how can we measure what we're doing? If we're not measuring what we're doing, if we're not monitoring that, how do we know that it's working? And that's so wildly important. I love that she emphasizes those things. Again, going back to that church, that faith connection with science and research, it just invigorates me. And I get so excited when I'm able to meet people like Delia and able to collaborate with people that are even here uh, this week at, at the CAFO Summit, where we're trying to help um, wonderful people with great intentions who are called and who have uh, the spirit of the Lord with them and are excited about helping children and families, but helping them also to understand the importance of monitoring and evaluating and using effective 
treatments or effective programs that there are great programs that exist and there's people like Delia and people like all the other professionals that are here this week that we desire to help and to teach and to train to help and come alongside of ministries and and churches. I'll get really, really excited about that, Phil. Yeah, there's there's so much to be excited about. I mean, that's that's the thing with that with that interview. Um, that's the thing with Delia. That's the thing with the work that they're doing around the world. That uh, you know, we can just we can just walk alongside uh, each other. And, and she said something there that you know, talking about in the context of working with governments, talked about a lot about collaboration. She lo- talked a lot about how we can work together. And I just love a quote that I, I wrote down because it's something that, that want, it inspired me and I'm a collaborator. So I, I hope that it inspired people out there to really start working together where she said, despite the fact, and I can't do her accent. So that definitely added something else, but it says, despite the fact that we have different agendas and we all bring something to the table that might be different, we can all advocate in one voice. We can all be much more powerful in our collaboration and engagement with governments. And I think you can kind of exchange with governments to so many other things, so many other things in our lives. We can be so much more powerful if we, instead of saying, how are we different and what do we disagree on? We can start with, what do we agree on? How are we together on this? And I think that that's a whole lot more than how we're different and how we disagree. And so if we can actually come together and say, let's be a team. How can we do this stuff together? I think that the kids around the world will be so much better off and us adults will stop, you know, being immature and, and really getting at each other's throats. Um, so I, I get excited to see what can happen. And I hope that this podcast is just a little part of that team building and collaboration building. So, um, thanks again, Delia. And the other thing that she talked about, I'm not going to get into it. You can hear what she said, but just really the importance of community integration. When she said the hard part of the work starts when the children are integrated into their communities. What does that look like when the kids are aging out, when the kids are whatever it is? And that goes to our, my biological children too, right? When they're in our house, that's like a safe zone. The hard part is when they have to go out and be adults. And how are we preparing our children, not just our children in our own home, our children around the world to really be able to function, not just function, but flourish in, in our societies and our communities. Cause that's really what we're seeking here is for their God given talents and abilities and gifts to really be able to be used for, for, for kingdom glory. So with that, we're going to move into the, um, Phil and Karen recommend section. And I, I always love this part. And, and th- this is a, something that yesterday I was reminded of the amazing work that Faith to Action um, is doing. Uh, they are coming up with such amazing resources for us. And Sarah Gasarek is a great friend and she heads up the, uh, the initiative. And they have some, they have some great resources I started with the Journeys of Faith a few years ago, and they just have kept producing stuff over the years. And they have some new resources on children um, in, in orphanages and how we can really transition to family care. And so to really go in deep on how to do that, they've come up with some amazing stuff in print and online. And the best part about all of it, it's free. Actually, that's not the best part. That's actually just a bonus. The best part is the resources are phenomenal. So I I encourage you to look, faithtoaction.org. We will have that on the show notes as well. Go get them. Go get the resources. They will send them to you. You can download them. They're in PDF versions. And there's also some some interactive. They have some great podcasts as well. Actually, Delia, if you didn't get enough Delia, um, which you probably didn't, you can go listen to the Faith to Action podcast with her too. So... 
we're going to finish up with that. If you're, um, if you were able to join us here at KFO, you're going to know how much goodness we're going to have for the next couple days. But, uh, if not, um, hopefully you can find the information somewhere else, but, uh, we will definitely have, again, have the link to the KFO, uh, summit so you can catch it next year too. So without any more, I just encourage you as I always do to go out, take what you learned today and really use it to help you to understand how you can love and encourage and just support um, the at-risk and orphaned children around the world better and better every single day of your life. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.